through 4, and uh, then we'll get to what that, that subject is. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's just pray. Lord, we know that we don't understand just because we hear. We only understand your word because your Holy Spirit opens it up to us, because you're a God who reveals himself to us. And you have truth that sets us free here. And so would you, in your graciousness and in your mercy, open it to us and make our hearts receptive to it, not just for knowledge's sake, but for the sake of conforming to your image in 2017. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The sentence that we're going to focus on in this passage is verse 4. He... That is, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through these promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. This passage is about promises. Promises that God makes to us which are very great. This is God's own description of what they're like. <laughs> if God says to you, I have something very great for you. I, th I think that we ought to believe that that's going to be really great, right? Uh, he's got promises that are great, and they're intended to have this powerful impact on our day-to-day -day lives, which he calls partaking of the divine nature. <laughs> uh, I want to explore this morning what that means that these promises have been given to us that we might partake of the divine nature. In my reading over the last year or so, I've been coming across examples of how saints, past and present, uh, have trusted the promises of God and how it enabled them to step out in faith and, and live a transformed life. Uh, how they saw the mighty works of God. George Mueller is one example. You probably know him as the so-called man of faith. He trusted God to provide for the hundreds of orphans that it was his charge to care for, that he felt a calling to. And so God provided over and over again in all these miraculous ways, and you can read about those things. And you might think, well, George Mueller was a one-of-a-kind sort of person, the, the man of faith, kind of the standout. We shouldn't expect anybody else to, to operate that way. 
Um, but George Mueller himself didn't think that he was doing anything out of the ordinary for the average Christian. So listen to what he said near the end of his life. He said, when I first began to allow God to deal with me, relying on him, taking him at his word, and set out 50 years ago, simply relying on him for myself, family, taxes, traveling expenses, and every other need, I rested on the simple promises I found in the sixth chapter of Matthew. I believed the word. I rested on it and practiced it. I took God at his word. I put my reliance in the God who has promised and he has acted according to his word. It was simple trust in the promises of God that were behind George Mueller's life and what God did with it. That's not out of reach for you or me. Simple trusting in the promises of God. Likewise, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, he exercised simple trust in the promises of God. One day his missionary fund had, that, they, that they lived off of had dwindled down to 25 cents. That's all they had. And he wrote a note to his wife. He, he said, we have this, 25 cents, and all the promises of God. <laughs> and God provided. So according to the scriptures and according to the experiences of the saints, promises of God have real power to make a difference in our lives, to make us partakers of the divine nature. I'm going to explain more about what that means. So my aim this morning is to encourage all of us uh, to make trusting the promises of God a practical reality in our lives so that we'll see the Lord do great things for his glory and we might get joy and peace multiplied to us, grace and peace multiplied to us as we partake of his nature. So our focus is going to be on verse 4. But let's put it in its context with a brief overview of 1 to 4. So this is the context. Verse 1 uh, tells us that Peter wrote this letter to believers in Jesus. He said, they have a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that's a wonderful affirmation of the equal standing that all believers have before God. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a nobody in the world's eyes. It, it doesn't matter if you don't attain to the status of George Mueller or even the Apostle Peter himself. You have the same standing before God that he has because it's based on the same thing, which is that you have been given a righteousness from God through faith. It's like Paul was saying in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, he wanted that to be found in him that is in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That, that's what gives each of us an equal standing with Peter and Paul, and even, in fact, the same standing that Jesus has before God because it's his righteousness that is credited to us by faith. So this letter is written to believers in Jesus, and everything that follows is on the basis of having God's acceptance because of this equal standing that we have in Christ. Verse 2, then, is a greeting full of warm desire. 
for multiplied experience of grace and peace uh, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That is, he wants them to have this a kind of knowledge of God that does more than just inform our minds and answer our questions about God, but that leads to actual multiple experiences of God's grace and of his peace in our lives. And so he immediately goes on to verse 3 to show us how that's done. Uh, We might say, give me an example of how the knowledge of God makes grace and peace uh, more of an experienced reality in my life. And so Peter will say, well, here's what I'm talking about. Let me show you how this works. And so it starts with knowing this uh, in verse 3, that our God and Savior has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Uh, That means you have everything you need to live a godly life, a life that's full of purpose and meaning and significance and hope and resources for doing every good work that he calls for you to do. It's like you have an unlimited fund in the bank called resources for living a life unto the Lord. (laughs) And you can make as many withdrawals on it as you want, (laughs) and it will never run out. That's, That's a great thing. This unlimited fund comes to us through a channel, through means, namely, through the knowledge of him who called us, according to Peter. That is, we become owners of this fund through knowing our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And and that's an expression of saving faith, not unlike what Jesus said in John 17, 3, where he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So you get life from knowing God. You get all things pertaining to life and godliness through this relationship with God, through Jesus Christ, through that kind of knowing. This God who is full of glory and excellence, according to Peter. And it's God's glory and excellence, his wonderful nature, that leads him to do something for us, who are believers. Namely, verse 4, he grants to us his precious and very great promises. In other words, God says, I will be this to you. Or, you can expect that from me. Promises. Now here's where the knowledge of God can make real difference in your lives. How it can lead to multiple experiences of grace and peace and more. There's a purpose for these precious and very great promises. It's that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Some translations say participate or share in, the idea is that through God's promises, you will share in the divine attributes of God to some degree. You don't become God or little gods, but you become more and more like your God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in your actual character and life. There will be some sort of reflection of the true God through you. Um, it's like Peter said in verses 5 and beyond, certain attributes become more and more yours. And he lists virtue, knowledge of God, 
self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, love demonstrated in, in real actions. It's through precious and very great promises of God that you become partakers of these things in your actual experience. And this happens against the backdrop of the world, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, he says. There's a sense in which that's happened already by virtue of having been called by the Savior into life. A decisive break has happened in the power of sinful desire. It's no longer your master anymore. You've escaped that. But there's also a sense in which your increasing participation in the divine nature is leading to more and more freedom from the corruption of the world. So you're like uh, a freed slave who is learning how to live free. <laughs> you aren't a slave anymore, but we still have temptations. We still have habits that have to be worked out of our life over time. But you are freed from the corruption. You're not under the bondage of sin anymore. You're not under the, the prince of the power of the air of this world anymore. He doesn't rule your life. Now you have a different master. And you're learning to live in your freedom. So let me summarize all that because I blew through a whole bunch of theology in a short period of time. Here's the point, that if I could say it this way. God's promises have been given to you not just to become head knowledge, but to transform your life. It, it will make you into someone whose life can only be explained by the fact that there's a real God and that he's at work in you and that he's at work through you. Grace and peace will be multiplied to you if you embrace the knowledge of what God has promised to you as a believer in Jesus. Or to say it even more simply, great things will happen if you trust the promises of God. <laughs> great things will happen if you trust the promises of God. So for the remainder of our time, I want to flesh that reality out in detail. Because I want to experience this. I have, and you have probably, but as Peter prayed, we would want the experiences of the divine nature realized in our soul, in grace and peace, peace and, and so forth. We want that more and more, don't we? And Peter says, God has given us precious and very great promises to bring that about if we embrace them. So let's start with this observation. Uh, God has made promises to us. That's the first one. God's made promises to you individual believer. A promise, according to the dictionary, is a declaration that gives the person to whom it is made a right to expect or claim the performance of a specified act. Okay? So someone says to you, I will pick you up for dinner at 6 p.m. Friday night. You have a right to expect them to do it. If they don't do it, they've broken their promise. God makes promises to us. And we have a right to expect Him to fulfill them. Not because we inherently deserve God to do anything for us, because we don't. We aren't worthy of Him doing anything for us. 
because of our sin. But once God has said that he'll do something, then it isn't our worth that holds him to it. It's his integrity. It's his character. He would prove himself to be a liar or a cheat if he didn't do what he promised to do. He's bound himself by oath to do it. One example of such a promise that God makes is what Jesus said in John 6.40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is saying, God makes a promise to you. If you believe in the Son, if you, if you trust in Jesus as the Savior and you follow Him, you're not going to regret it. Because what's going to happen is, I'm going to raise you from the dead. I promise. You aren't going to open your eyes into the next world and go, oh, it was just a joke. It was all for nothing. No, He says, when you open your eyes in death, you'll see what I'm talking about. You're going to see great things. You're going, to be, you're going to have real life. I promise. God makes many such promises to us. I think what John MacArthur said, he was commenting on the spiritual blessings of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, and he gives us a, a scope of what is covered in God's promises. So he writes this. This is just reflecting on Ephesians chapter 1. Our every conceivable need is met by God's gracious provision in accordance with His divine promises. We are promised peace, love, grace, wisdom, eternal life, joy, victory, strength, guidance, power, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, truth, fellowship with God, spiritual discernment, heaven, eternal riches, glory, those and every other good thing that comes from God. The list just keeps on going. Now, we don't have time to explore all the promises, obviously, but we can divide them into two categories. There are some promises that are unconditional. So they're just what God is going to do no matter what you do. Uh, an example, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. It's from Matthew sixteen twenty seven. That's just the way it is. Nothing that you or I or anyone can do will ever change that. It's just going to happen. It's unconditional. There are other promises that are conditional. So they require something from you if you want to see them fulfilled in your life. An example is 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So how do you know if God will give you what you ask for? Well, according to the text, it's if he hears you. That is, if he hears with an intent to do. That he's receptive to it and agrees, yes. 
How do you know if he hears you that way? If you ask according to his will. He makes no promise to give you what you want if it's not according to his will. So we must align our will with his will so that when we ask, it is according to his will and he will do it. But he won't do it if our will is not aligned with his. You see, there's something that we need to do, which is adjust, which is to know our God and to, to lean in and to want what he wants, to find out what he wants, and then to want that in this situation and in that situation. That's conditional. So God makes promises to us. That's our first observation. Here's the second one. God always keeps his promises. He always keeps them. Balaam was a scoundrel. You might know his story in the Old Testament. But he spoke truth from God when he said this in Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The writer of Hebrews 6.18 said, It is impossible for God to lie. So we can be sure that if God makes a promise to us in the Bible, it must and will come to pass. He binds himself to it. And being almighty, there is nothing in heaven or earth that can stop him from doing it. So he's not a person who promises to pick you up this Friday night for dinner at 6 o'clock and then doesn't show up because he changed his mind or because his car wouldn't start. Because he's almighty and he's unchangeable. He's not fickle and he's not unable like we are. He's not man. God is faithful to his promises. And that has been proven biblically and personally. So let me just take two examples from the Bible on how God has kept his promises and then one from my own life. You first of all have the Lord's promise to Sarah, Sarah who could have no children, Sarah who was 90 years old now. And he says to Abraham about Sarah in Genesis 18.10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. <laughs> Which she didn't believe, because the way of women was past her already. She didn't have the, the functionality anymore to have kids. And so she said, nah, she laughed. That's kind of ridiculous. She couldn't see how that could be done. To which the Lord responded, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And about this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. And you know what happened. According to Genesis 21.1, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And she conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. We shouldn't think that just because we don't understand how it can happen, that it can't happen. Because God's not man. When we don't see how something that can happen, we see what God can do. <laughs> if we can see how it can happen, it's just what man can do. But when we know that it's not possible 
to happen, then we see what God can do. And God is not limited by anything. Here's another example. God's promise to Abraham that he would give his offspring a land. We call it the promised land. When he was 75 years old, God said to Abram, to your offspring I will give you this land. And he meant the land of Canaan in which other people lived. It's roughly where this, the nation of Israel is right now. He said, that's yours. That's your offsprings. I'm going to give it to them. 100 years later, when he died, he had one son and two grandkids. And they didn't own one square foot of the land except for the burial place for Sarah, who had died. They didn't own anything. They didn't possess the land 100 years later. It wouldn't be until 500 years later when Joshua concluded the conquest of the promised land and then they possessed it and drove out the other nations. That's when they got it. And so you read at the end of Joshua, in Joshua 21, 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. 500 years, but it happened. God might fulfill his promise immediately like he did with Sarah, causing her to conceive, or he might wait 500 years but he is going to do it because he said so. Not one word fails. That should temper our own understanding of how God's promises work because we live in an instantaneous age where if somebody doesn't respond to my text message within the hour, I've been wronged. That's what we're used to. I can order something on Amazon and have it tomorrow. And I expect everything to work that way, including God's promises. But God's timing is built into God's promises. And we don't always understand what his timing is. He alone knows when and how he's going to fulfill it, but he will. He always will. I've seen that to be true. I've seen God be faithful to his promises in my own life. I've told the story before of how I struggled to leave my former job to go into pastoral ministry because I didn't know how he was going to provide for us because for sure we weren't going to make any money for the next year and then we weren't guaranteed of any income after that. And I struggled with that. Um, but the Lord's promise in Matthew 6, 31 to 33 spoke to me. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Those were the kind of questions I had. <laughs> I was asking those questions. The Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So I looked at that and I said, all right, Lord, I need you to come through on that one because I have no backup plan if this doesn't work. And I quit my job, and we spent all our savings, and the Lord brought us right up to the point of having nothing, having our own 25 cents in the bank and all the promises of God, and he provided for us, and he's still providing, because we were seeking first the kingdom of God. God always keeps his promises, and you probably have your own stories 
and you'll have more of them. We'll have more of them as we actually put our trust in the promises, which is the last observation. We are to trust God's promises. We are to trust God's promises. I think this is what Peter had in mind when he says, through the promises you may become partakers of the divine nature. You actually experience God's grace and peace and all the attending benefits of his promises when you actually put your trust in them. A, a promise that is not trusted is like a check that is not cashed. Uh, the check is promised money, and you have a right to it, but unless you cash it, you don't get the benefit of it. God's promises are like that. You need to trust that they are legal tender, so to speak, and that you cash in on them by trusting and acting on them. Then you get the benefit. Then this knowledge about God becomes an experience of God as reality, as really working in your life. That's the very imagery that Charles Spurgeon used about God's promises in his devotional Faith's Checkbook. You can get that online. You can have that sent into your email box every day if you want. It's, it's a year devotional, or at least many days. I can't remember if it's a whole year. Um, here's what Spurgeon said about the promises of God in his preface to Faith's Checkbook. This is a long quote, but you can't go wrong with Spurgeon quotes and every part of it is, is good and, and reinforces what, we're, what the truth is that we've been learning about. So, so listen to this from Spurgeon. A promise from God may very instructively be compared to a check payable to order. It is given to the believer with the view of bestowing upon him some good thing. It is not meant that he should read over it comfortably and then have done with it. No, he is to treat the promise as reality as a man treats a check. He is to take the promise and endorse it with his own name. By personally receiving it as true, he is by faith to accept it as his own. He sets to his seal that God is true and true as to this particular word of promise. He goes further and believes that he has the blessing in having the sure promise of it, and therefore he puts his name to it to testify to the receipt of the blessing. This done, he must believingly present the promise to the Lord as a man presents a check at the counter of the bank. He must plead it by prayer, expecting to have it fulfilled. If he has come to heaven's bank at the right date, he will receive the promised amount at once, like Sarah. If the date should happen to be further on, he must patiently wait till its arrival, like Abraham. But meanwhile, he may count the promise as money, for the bank is sure to pay when the due time arrives. Some fail to place the endorsement of faith upon the check, and so they get nothing. And others are slack in presenting it, and these also receive nothing. This is not the fault of the promise, but of those who do not act with it in a common-sense, business-like manner. <laughs> what I love about that analogy is it removes one possible hindrance to really trusting and acting on the promises of God. And that hindrance is thinking that it would be presumptuous to hold God to his promise for you. That it would be overconfident about something that you're not entitled to. Uh, we might think it's humility to read a promise and think, well, that's probably for my care group leader. 
or a pastor or some other godly person, um, but I've got lots of issues in my life. Uh, I don't really qualify for those promises. But that's not humility. Um, Just like it's not humility to refuse to cash a check that has been gifted to you by somebody. Saying, well, we really don't deserve it. Well, you don't deserve it. (laughs) That's true. You and I don't deserve anything from God. But God has given you a promise anyway. The guarantee of it is not your worthiness, but God's mercy. Paul said to the Corinthian church, who had serious holiness issues, that all the promises of God find their yes in Him, that is, in Christ. Jesus purchased for you the check of God's promise through His death on the cross. All God's promises are yes in Him. Jesus purchased the yes because it's based on His merit, not yours. That's what holds God to his promise, is because Jesus has paid for the yes to it. If you want to be humble, if you want to honor Christ for his sacrifice, then you trust the promises of God. And you expect God to fulfill them, because Jesus died so that you could. This is how you will partake of the divine nature. This is how you will experience the life of God at work in you. You will see him to be faithful, and it will increase your trust in him the more you see his faithfulness. So I want to close with application. How do we grow in trusting God's precious and very great promises? Is there any pathway to help us to make this our instinctive habit? And I think there is. This is something I learned from John Piper, and I've tried to make a habit of it. And to the degree that I have, it's been very encouraging, and I have seen God's faithfulness. Um, It's an acronym that he coined about 30 years ago. I was introduced to it about 20 years ago. Uh, And the acronym is APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. And I've printed some bookmarks that have everything I'm about to say on it. Well, not everything, but the bullet points. Uh, bookmarks are out there with this acronym and what it means on the, on the info table. So you don't have to furiously write notes and capture all this. It's, it's out there. Um, so just listen to this. Um, Piper used this acronym to explain how you do things in the strength of God and not in your own strength. But I think it's not limited to that specifically. I think that this is a way to approach the whole Christian life. It's a way to intentionally take God at his word and really trust and act on promises as a way of life. Um, It may be that you need strength. It may be that you need wisdom. It may be that you're thinking of quitting your job to become a pastor. You might be trying to make some other important decision or do something that seems risky, but the word and counsel seems to be pointing you in that direction. Uh, Whatever it is, I think this acronym can help you develop some good habits of trusting God's promises. So here's the acronym. Um, A starts with A, which is admit that without Christ you can do nothing of abiding fruitfulness. Some decision, some trial, some task is in front of you. 
And you start with this recognition of your own inability to meet the challenge. And you should recognize that because Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me you can do nothing. Nothing of eternal value and fruitfulness. So we start with, with humility. We admit that without Christ we can do nothing of abiding fruitfulness. Then we pray, P, pray for God's help. The help you need might be strength for a task. It might be wisdom for a decision. It might be some intervention by God on your behalf, but you call out to him for help. And God himself invites us to do this in Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So God says, call upon me. You're in trouble? You're needy? You know you can't do it? Call upon me. Cry out to me. I want you to do that. Now here's where the promises of God come in. Because typically our habit at this point is we pray about something and then we go do it. Right? Um, we go right to A, which, the next A, which is to act. But when we do that, we can still operate with a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not we're on the right course uh, it can still seem like we're walking forward in the dark. We're hoping that God will do something, but we're not totally sure if he will help us in this thing. Because remember, uh, it's got to be according to his will that he hears us and sends the help that we're asking for. So how, how do we get some sort of assurance that this thing that I'm about to do, this decision I'm going to make, this direction I'm going to take, or if I'm just leaving something in God's hands, how do I know really concretely that God's going to do something here. That's where the T comes in. Trust. Trust in a promise of God suited to your need. Trust in a promise of God suited to your need. Uh, MacArthur said, Our every conceivable need is met by God's gracious provision in accordance with his divine promises. So there's some promise in the Bible somewhere that's specific to your real need. So you think of that promise and you say, Lord, I need to rely on you this, for this one to be true. This, I have to have this. <laughs> and I'm going to take this step or I'm going to leave this thing in your hands um, because your word encourages me to do that. So I'm going to do it. But I need your promise to be true. I do this every week <laughs> with sermon preaching and preparing. I think of Moses who says, you know, Lord, I don't know how to speak. And God says, who has made man's mouth? Is it not I? You know, if he's put you up there to say something, then he's going to say it. You trust me. So that's what I go to every, every week. That's just one. You're going to have one. There's going to be a promise for the thing that's in front of you. Somehow, some way. And now as a footnote, you can see how it would be really important for you to actually know the promises that are in the Bible. <laughs> if you don't know what they are, you can't do this step. So an encouragement, read a lot. <laughs> Pick up that Bible reading plan, that verse memory list, and start filling your mind with what God has promised to you. So that when you get to that thing, you can say, this one I need today. And I would encourage you, start with the general ones. 
Uh, one of the first verses I ever memorized was Isaiah 41.10, which is a promise. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You can, you can sign that check every day <laughs> for pretty much everything. But there are even more specific ones. But if you don't know those, at least start with the general ones. Because those are promises. After you T, trust, so A, P, T, then you have another A, act. Act with humble confidence in God's help. So you actually do the thing that requires trusting God's promises to do. You make that decision. You take that step. You leave something in God's hands. You move forward. That's how you cash in the check in faith's checkbook, and you turn a written promise into an experienced reality. And then you do the last thing, the last T, which is you thank God for the good that comes. You circle back around, and you remember why that thing happened <laughs> because God is faithful and I would encourage you to journal to write these things down so you can go back and you can say I remember this I, I remember yes I was in that spot and God got me through that and it builds your faith for the future I was reading about a woman who had a Bible that was all marked up and then next to a whole bunch of places it said T and P these two initials T and P and, and the the pastor was looking at the Bible with, with this woman. He's like, what does that mean? And she goes, tested and proved. <laughs> Maybe a date. Yeah, that one, I've tested it. And, if, and God's proven himself. Maybe that's a habit. Get a journaling Bible. Like Shannon just got, you know. Get some space to do that. However you do it, don't forget. <laughs> that's how we build trust. That's how we want to do this more. It's how we have faith to do the harder thing in front of us. So maybe that's a, a habit you need to pick up. That's the acronym, APTAT. I recommend it to you. I practice that every week now as much as I can, as much as I remember when I'm not self-reliant. And God shows himself because he's, he wants you to participate in the divine nature. And to know that he's real and that his promises are true. So may this year, 2017, be marked by more and more of that for all of us. Let's pray. We recognize that we don't deserve all the wonderful things that you promise. And so, Lord, we start with humility. We don't, we don't deserve it. But because you're so full of mercy, because, because you sent Jesus to remove the offense of our sin, now you make all these promises to us as sons and daughters. And so would you help us to lay hold of it and to be expectant and to not test you in a sort of a prideful, disrespectful way, but to, to lean in on, to actually trust in the things you've said. And may you give us eyes to see it when you do the, when you do the amazing thing. We want that for your glory and for our joy. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.